For so many modern-driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional, and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. In our business, we're big fans of financial literacy and accountability. Knowing your numbers is an essential aspect of building a successful business and an inherent responsibility for any entrepreneur. We also believe that what you focus on grows. So pay attention to your money. How do we stay up to speed on our numbers? We use Bench for our bookkeeping. It's simple, elegant, and saves us so many hours that would otherwise be spent neck deep in receipts on the other side of a spreadsheet. Each month, our transactions are automatically imported into Bench and we get on-demand financial reports. We even enjoy opening up our profit and loss statement to review each month. And when tax time comes around, we are up to date and ready to go. And this is what financial empowerment feels like. Head on over to anshe.co slash bench to save 20% off your Bench accounting plan for the first six months. Welcome to the And She Spoke podcast. I cannot wait to introduce you to our guest today. Her name is Casey Erin Clark from Vital Voice Training. And before she joined us on Zoom this morning, I was literally bouncing in my chair in anticipation of this conversation because I was that excited about talking about women and their voices, the actual sound of their voice. Casey is an actress and a singer, and at one point spent 18 months on tour with Les Mis. She teaches singing to pros and amateurs of all ages, sings in a Grammy-nominated and Tony-winning choir. And she's an entrepreneur. Her company, which she runs with her partner, Julie Fogg, is on a mission to change the conversation about what women are supposed to sound like and empower everyone to own the power of their full vocal instrument and presence. We talk about what authority sounds like, vocal issues like vocal fry and upspeak, and how more women are criticized for these issues than men. We all agree that we need to hear all the voices, no matter what they sound like. So please let me introduce to you Casey Erin Clark. Welcome, Casey, to the podcast. We're so thrilled to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Jenny, let's just get, I, I have so many questions and I just told Casey how excited we are to talk to her, but we do need to explain your story. So Casey, do you want to take a couple of minutes and just tell us who you are, what you do? Sure. So I first moved to New York 
after majoring in musical theater in college. I have my bachelor's of fine arts in singing and dancing and acting. And I grew up in a very small town in Illinois and I moved to New York to make it on Broadway, like the whole small town girl cliche. Uh And I was really lucky. I had, I got got to do a couple of off-Broadway shows. I toured with the musical Les Mis for 18 months. I've done really cool regional theater around the country. And I got back from the Les Mis tour in 2012 and thought, okay, well, I'm unemployed again. I am familiar with that state. (laughs) But boy, it was nice to make a living wage and have things like a 401k and paid vacation. Not that you necessarily have those things when you're an entrepreneur. (laughs) But I, I wasn't ready to go back to the kind of sort of little support jobs that I had had throughout my acting career. I was a tour guide. I tempted. I hustled. Actors learn how to hustle. There's no, there's no question about that. And at the time, I went on an interview that I thought was for a singing coach position. So I'd always taught singing. That's something that I had always done throughout my career. And instead, it turned out that this firm wanted a speech coach. And I had never done it before, but I thought, huh, yeah, I think I could do that. So I started with this firm. And my first client was a woman named Christy, who actually has a phenomenal podcast called Food Psych. And she was recording her podcast. It was her first season. She was losing her voice. She didn't particularly like how she sounded. She wasn't feeling like her voice was supporting her ideas. And so she came to me and I got to coach with her. And we talked about things like breath and tone and finishing your sentences and vocal health and all of those different things that I knew from my time being a theater artist. And I really fell in love with it. I really, there was something that was so exciting about taking the skills that I had learned as a theater artist and bringing them to people for whom they were magical. And at the same time, I realized very quickly that I did not like working for this firm. And they do good work. It just wasn't the kind of work that I wanted to do. It was based on, in my opinion, a very old-fashioned model of public speaking that for better or for worse, has always been, we're going to teach you how to put on your serious voice Mm. so people will take you seriously. Right. And that put on your serious voice model has always been based on, we're going to teach you how to do your most credible imitation of a straight, cisgendered white man. News anchor. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. News anchor voice. And and I was so uninterested in teaching people how to do that. And at the same time, I met a woman named Julie Fogg. And we were actually part of like an, an accountability group together, a gold accountability group. And we realized that we had very similar trajectories. She was also an actress. She was also a voice coach. We shared a lot of similar frustrations with both you know, working for other people in freelance and cobbling together gigs to make money and uh, similar frustrations with the voice and public speaking industry and how it treated particularly women. And we really bonded over this spate of articles that was showing up around 2013, 2014, 2015 about vocal fry in particular and how vocal fry is just so dumb and annoying and why do women do that? And the advice that women were getting was just terrible. It was so bad. And all of this kind of combined to us finally sitting across from each other one day and being like, you, wait, are we, yeah, mm. let's start a business. <laughs> and neither of us had ever done that before. And six years later, we have built vital voice training into something that both of us are incredibly proud of and could never have foreseen the incredible people that we get to work with and the organizations that bring us in to do this training around 
what does your authentic voice sound like? What is the fullest expression of your voice sound like and what can it do for you when you apply it in different circumstances and how do you make choices that honor you as an individual but that also honor your given circumstances and finding all of the messy stuff in between those two things is where we just really geek out so that was an extremely long answer to that question no, that's so good <laughs> it's so good i think that most of us civilians the non actors in the world like we don't think about our voice or no. we've been criticized or we've been told right and so this fact that like someone comes to you and says i want like that first client of yours that what how did you say that that she didn't feel like her voice was conveying her brand or her message yeah and she had more experience than most of my clients do i will say this in general most people don't like the sound of their own voice especially mm. when they hear it in a recording like you know if you if you hear a recording back of yourself chances are even like a you know we don't have answering machines anymore but like that kind of thing right when you hear a recording of your voice most people's response is like oh my god that's how i sound and part of that is because of how we hear on a physical level we hear our voices both in the way of input, as in like the sound that comes into our ears, but we also hear our voice from the inside out. And the way that our voice comes to our inner ear from the inside out is very different. Our bones and our flesh conduct sound in different ways, and our bones and flesh don't do a very good job of conducting higher tones and nasal tones. So in your own ear, your voice sounds a little lower, a little deeper, a little bit more resonant than it may sound outside in the world, which is why a lot of people are like, oh my God, I, I sound so high-pitched and nasal. We never have a fully accurate representation of what our voice really sounds like. And part of it is just getting used to it. So we read this book recently that we're obsessed with called Cringeworthy. Mm -hmm. And I wish... I could remember the name of the author. It's Melissa something, Melissa Dahl, maybe. She talks about the theory of awkwardness and that awkwardness is a disconnect or a gap between how I perceive myself and how I think someone else is perceiving me. And when those two things don't match, I feel awkward. And I think that a lot of the reason why people hear their voice and they're like, oh God, that's what I sound like, comes from that divide of how I think I sound and how I want to sound and how I want to be perceived and then how I'm sensing that other people are perceiving me. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's a lot in there. <laughs> I, 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 know, I definitely I know, would say, I would definitely say, you know, as podcasters, Sandy and I have to confront the sound of our own voice a lot. And yep. I, I have maybe more concerns with it than you do, Sandy. But I mean, we spent a solid year recording a show and didn't release it because in part of the insecurity around how we sounded, not having oh. to do with not just the tone, but sort of the level of confidence and our, our skills at interviewing people. I mean, it was a lot of different things, yeah. but I mean, we've been doing it now for years and we're, we're at we it. We don't we're, care anymore. We're not in that same headspace, but it was a year, you know, sort of wasted time because we had to go through this process of coming to terms with the fact that we were going to put something out that yep. made one or both of us uncomfortable. So that's so, I think these stories are pretty universal. Definitely. And especially the further you are outside of that white male newscaster, mm -hmm. Andre Lord's mythic norm. That's that <laughs> for those people, it's it's yeah. just different. We're held to different standards. That's we know right. it, we see it. It's just the truth. 
So I want you to talk more about that, like these vocal issues, like vocal fry and up speak that are typical for me. So first of all, I think most of our listeners don't know what vocal fry is. So could you explain that? And just I'd love this sort of chatter of this criticism of women who have that. So just tell us, tell us that story. Yeah, totally. So vocal fry it's like this sound, the kind of scratchy voice. And it's like kind of associated with like the Kardashians. Like that's when, so vocal fry, some people call this sexy baby voice. Mm. So Lake Bell in 2013 made a, a very sweet indie film about trying to be a voiceover artist. And she actually, I think is credited with coining the term sexy baby voice. It just came back into discussion recently because of the show Love is Blind, because mm. I guess one of the contestants supposedly had sexy baby voice. Jessica. (laughs) Yes. So vocal fry comes from a lot of different things. First of all, men have vocal fry too. Everyone has vocal fry. Vocal fry primarily is driven by a lack of breath support. So when you don't use your, your breath all the way through the end of your sentence, you tend to drop off. So like we, we do the sentence, we finish the sentence and we kind of just drop off the energy. So that's vocal fry, what I'm doing at the end of the sentence. Vocal fry can also, and here's where it gets ironic and gets touchy for women, vocal fry can come from speaking below where your natural, what we sometimes call a pitch neighborhood is. So all of us have differently shaped vocal cords, depending on how long and how thick your vocal cords are, kind of gives you a rough pitch neighborhood of where your voice sits. So some people have higher pitched voices, some people have lower pitched voices, but higher pitched voices culturally tend to denote in at least some people a lack of seriousness, girliness, too feminine, et cetera. So, you know, women get the sense both consciously and subconsciously that they will not be taken seriously if they sound feminine. So they adjust the pitch of their voice downward, especially when they work in male-dominated environments. You see, I see this in particular with women who are a little bit older in their 50s, 60s, who were the ones who were, you know, first entering the workforce, first, you know, in these corporate environments. And so they, they tend to have artificially lowered the sound of their voices so that they sound serious, so that they sound credible, so they sound intelligence. But what's happening is as I continue lowering the pitch of my voice, I go into vocal fry because I can no longer fully phonate as in bring my chords together and, and resonate fully. So the irony of vocal fry as a signifier of silly, girly femininity when it's sometimes in a direct opposition to a higher-pitched voice that might be more natural to that woman but is also considered not credible, it's like a classic feminine Mm catch-22. So when we talk about vocal fry... First of all, again, we acknowledge that everyone has vocal fry at some points. Everyone does because we don't always fully resonate through all of our sentences unless we are, you know, a trained actor doing whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. but vocal fry is pretty much only criticized when women do it. Ira Glass has a great episode of This American Life on this where he talks about, so first of all, Ira Glass has a ton of vocal fry. He's like the king of vocal fry. It's a very distinctive voice, but when he has female co-hosts on his show, they get the emails about their vocal fry and he never does. So it was really great that he did an episode devoted to this about how we hear voices because this is, again, part of the main core mission of our company is let's talk about why some voices are criticized more than others and how we can shift that culturally. So in terms of vocal fry as a function of not enough 
air, not enough breath support. I think that's something that all of us can think about in terms of how we use our breath to power our voice, how our breath helps us connect with people, how it helps our voices come out into the world as opposed to be kind of like kept cool and back here and like, it's fine, I'm cool, whatever. That sounds sort of dispassionate or, or bored or not really engaged, but vocal fry is not a problem because it makes you sound like a girl. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I associate that with upspeak too. I've always said that, that upspeak makes you sound very unsure. Let's talk about upspeak because this is another one that's really interesting. So, so yes, that can be a function of upspeak. So one of the things that we hear a ton, again, across all genders and all age groups with our clients, but particularly with younger people, is a tendency to never come in to land at the end of a sentence. And I just told you in the vocal fry explanation that, you know, when we end a sentence on a down, sometimes the energy drops off completely. And that's when we go into vocal fry. So sometimes, you know, the opposite of that, which is ending a sentence with energy, will kind of like bring you up a little bit and pitch at the end of your sentence. But the other thing that that signals is I'm not finished yet. So don't cut me off. Hmm. And I really believe that a lot of what we hear as upspeak is actually not a function of I'm not sure what I'm saying or I'm feeling not confident. It's actually a function of I'm not done yet. Please, for the love of God, don't cut me off because people are used to being cut off. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so there are lots of other places where upspeak comes from. Sometimes it's a regionalism. We hear it a lot in Midwestern people, and I'm from the Midwest, typically upper Midwest people like Minnesota and like that area. You'll hear a lot of upspeak just in their natural sort of the musicality of their speech. The other thing that you hear it in addition to please don't interrupt me is when someone is in a room and they're feeling like they need to prove themselves, like people in the room might not take them seriously, we tend to stack our thoughts and just feel like if I just give them enough information, if I just you know keep stacking information and I, and I anticipate every question that they could possibly ever have and I anticipate every opposition that they might have to what I'm saying, if I just say enough words, then I will convince them of what I'm saying. So it ends up being word vomit and we just ramp from sentence to sentence to sentence and we never ever come into land. So that's another big function that we see with upspeak in particular. So yes, in American English, we tend to signal the end of a sentence with a downward inflection, but we don't always do that. I just did it. We don't always do that, (laughs) right? But that wasn't Mm -hmm. upspeak in I'm not sure of myself. I'm giving you a different musicality that... so. Again, it's, mm-hmm. it's a more complex discussion than, ladies, upspeak is making you sound like you're not sure of yourself, so stop using upspeak. And we actually had a client come to us. She said, she said a female boss of hers made her come into her office one day and practice ending sentences on a down hmm. for an hour. And I'm oh like, my God, that cannot be helpful. Like that wow. is not, it's such a mechanical way of looking at it when language is so wow. beautifully nuanced and complex. And we have so many tools at our disposal in how we choose to express ourselves. So, mm-hmm. so narrowing the field doesn't help anybody. Hmm. So I noticed on your website that you help people to either feel or be more authoritative in the way that they speak. What does that look like? What do you look for in doing that work with someone? And what does that process look like? So I actually just spat out a blog post last night about this because 
So yesterday, Elizabeth Warren dropped out of the, the U.S. presidential race, and I was devastated, not to get political here necessarily, but I found it personally devastating because I find Elizabeth Warren to be absolutely a beautiful example of an authoritative woman, someone who is intelligent, who's prepared, who's done her homework, but who also has the capacity to learn, the ability to listen, the willingness to be very compassionate, but also to be a super fighter for what she believes in. So whatever you think of Elizabeth Warren's politics, I think that at least a lot of the women that I talk to find her a really interesting example of authoritative. So the day that Julie and I sat in my living room and drank half a bottle of rosé together and decided what to name our company and bought our domain name, we also came up with our first submission. So it was for a feminist business conference called the Bullish Conference. And we were talking about all these articles about vocal fry and upspeak and women's voices. And we came up with the title, What Does Authority Sound Like? So we really wanted to ask the question of when we think of a leader, when we think of someone in a position of authority, what do we think of? What do we imagine? Who do we picture and who do we hear inside our heads? And what does that mean for anybody who does not match that? image, that sound picture that we have. So we talked a lot about what is our cultural definition of authority? What is our personal definition of authority and leadership? And teasing out the difference between authority from a model of dominance and authority as something that you earn, as something that you establish via rapport, as something that you can own through ownership of your ideas and your positions? And then what does it mean to then express that in the world and how do we do that? And the answer is it looks different on everybody, which is the beautiful part about it. And and we do firmly believe, and I think we believed perhaps with a bit more, I don't know, maybe you could call it naive optimism in 2014. (laughs) We believed in 2014 that, you know, so much of this was a matter of individuals stepping up and claiming their personal power and claiming their ability to be authentic in the workplace. And I think if we've made any philosophical shifts between 2014 and now, we always acknowledged that there was a systemic and a cultural aspect to this. But I think that a lot of particularly white women have had to grapple in the past six years with a narrative of what can we do as individuals and how do individuals change the system versus how much power does the system actually have? How much power does does the cultural narrative have? And how do we find this like messy tension point between what is my responsibility and what actually is up to the culture to change and organizations to change and businesses to change? So I do still believe that individuals stepping into their power is crucial and important, and it's work that I love doing. But when it comes to the question of what does authority sound like, if organizations don't get on board with expanding their definition and cultures don't get on board with expanding their definition, then we're going to see many, 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 many more races, political races, where it comes down to, again, the mythic norm, white man and It's a hard thing to see. And the tension between optimism and pragmatism, I think, is one that we're going to just continue to grapple with. So I don't know if that really answered Mm -hmm. your question. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's a hard one. But I think 
like so this reminds me so much of like the body positivity movement like we just want to accept all body shapes all body types right and so like it's the same for voice which is just something i never really considered before until really diving into your work and it's like should we not as women out there as entrepreneurs or work you know corporate workers whatever just try to own our voice and be comfortable with our own voice and find us just not try to fit into that stereotypical voice. And has podcasting changed this? Like with so many people, just, you know, everyone can have a podcast now. And and I always thought that broadcasting and, you know, radio work was always for the certain, you had to have a kind of voice to be successful. And podcasts has just changed that. Yes, I think you're making an excellent point there. I do think that sort of the democratizing of the airwaves, Mm. I guess you could say with, I mean, and this is with social media as well. I think, you know, the body positivity movement wouldn't have as much momentum as it has if we didn't have Instagram showing different bodies. Now, of course, there's also the argument that Instagram, like there's a great article Gia Tolentino wrote about Instagram face and how Mm -hmm. Instagram has sort of both given us representations of a lot of different bodies and a lot of different kinds of beauty and also sort of weirdly homogenized beauty into this one ideal that still is completely unattainable. Like you need to be skinny, but you also need to have like a curvy butt and like you need to have like beautiful breasts and like so and and perfect high cheekbones and like almond shaped eyes and skin that's a particular color. So yeah, social media and and podcasts and the proliferation of voices, both literal, you know, speaking voices and and just voices of how people express themselves online, I think has has done a lot in both directions, I think, in in cementing who is taken seriously within different factions, like different subgroups. I think we see that on Twitter, like for sure. And this is an interesting business quandary that we really wrestled with from the beginning is okay, if our message is your voice isn't broken and you don't need to be fixed, then how do we sell our services? (laughs) But we really do believe that. It's like, it's, we, because that is the message that I think so many women get about their voices in particular is that your voice is a mess and it needs to be cleaned up. Your voice is broken and it needs to be fixed. And what we're saying is a little different. What we're saying is, that stupid saying where people are like, you only use 10% of your brain, which is total crap. It's like not true at all. (laughs) People really do often, as you said earlier, only use a small part of their voice because they don't think about it. It's not something that we put thought into the way we put thought into our wardrobe or we put thought into our resume or we put thought into our, you know, our Instagram feed or whatever. We don't put thought into our voice typically. What we want to tell people is, you're probably only using a small little representation of your true vocal power and your vocal range and your vocal nuance because of so many different factors because our voices are incredibly complex. So let us introduce you to your full voice, both the natural things that your voice can do via your anatomy. Let's also examine how your thoughts become speech. Let's also examine how emotions affect your voice and how stress and nerves and fear affect your voice because it does. Let's also examine how your past and the cultural things that you've absorbed and observed throughout your life have affected how you present yourself and how it's still affecting how you present yourself today. And then let's give you access to choices because then you can make the choice in how you want to show up. So if you work in you know, a dude bro tech firm 
And you know that if you're a woman in a dude bro tech firm, you've got a choice. You can put on a black hoodie and fit in in that way. Or if you're like a girly girl and you want to, you can show up in a dress and be perhaps in that culture overdressed and get suspicion for whatever reason, but you've made a choice. You've made a choice that says, this is who I am. So we believe in both the direction of, I want to make choices that help me to fit in and I want to make choices that help me to stand out, but we want to show you all the choices you have. This podcast is brought to you by the Namastream software platform. Namastream is an easy-to-use platform that helps you build and sell your own courses, memberships, and live-streamed programs. Go from idea to open for business in just minutes. Unlike other startups, Namastream was created by women for women. If you're looking for a simple, streamlined way to build and grow an online business, you can learn more at namastream.com. Yeah, that's so good. I actually worked in my previous life. I owned a business back in the days of radio and TV ads. And I worked with a speech pathologist who did similar work to you, just sort of different pathway to it. And we took the radio script and I worked for hours with her as far as like breath, like when do I breathe, you know, emphasis, pause. I loved it. I could have done that all day long. It's and then fun, when I went in, yeah, and I went into the radio station to record, I just nailed it because I had worked with her so much. So I love that part of what you do. And, and Jenny are like, we're hiring her. We're going to go on a world tour and then <laughs> she's going to get us to like speak with authority. So there's that side of it, right? Even if we have authority and believe in ourselves, there's also the delivery that could always be improved. Up speak because I'm asking a question. Oh, totally. Well, because we're, well, and that's where rehearsal comes in. And I think that people have really interesting ideas around preparation and rehearsal. So what we tend to see, first of all, the people who come to us tend to be perfectionists. They tend to be extreme high achievers. They tend to be deeply self-critical. I often say I have a homing beacon for perfectionists because I, I am a recovering perfectionist myself. And so again, they have this idea in their head of like, okay, I want you to give me the check boxes. And I'm going to tick them off one by one and I'm going to be very organized and I'm going to get it right. And we've all seen those speeches. We've all seen the speeches where someone is very, very prepared and they're hitting all their marks and they're like taking three steps to the left and doing steeple fingers. And then they're they're doing the (laughs) TED talk thing of, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. Pause, pause, pause. And then I'm going to answer it. <laughs> and you can see the technique. And as an actor, like this is something that we, this is like the fun part of acting is like, yes, you got to learn the rules. You got to learn the technique. Like that's the training aspect of it. But what we're trying to get to is where the technique is so ingrained that you can be truly present with it and you can roll with the punches, you can roll with the feelings and the feels that happen inside you when you're nervous. And it comes out in a way that is in Maslow's four stages of learning, right? So we've got unconscious incompetence. I don't know what I don't know. Mm -hmm. We've got conscious incompetence, which is, holy crap, there's so much I don't know. I'm never going to be good at this, which is where a lot of people come to us. There's conscious competence, which is another place that a lot of people come to us. I know I'm a pretty good speaker, but I'm in my head about it and I don't know really how to rehearse and it's still not fun. And then the last stage is that unconscious competence. And that's where the magic happens. 
that's where things might go wrong. You might even forget a word or a section or like somebody in the audience has a coughing fit or the lights go out or your tech doesn't work or whatever. And you can roll with it because you're present and you're there communicating with your audience because that's the most important part is like that connection, whether you're, you know, one or two on one or you're one on a thousand, it's about that point of connection with the audience. And so my authenticity shines in order to make my point, to say my piece so that they can hear it. And that's just the fun Mm -hmm. part. So often people just only rehearse to either they don't rehearse, they avoid rehearsing because they're like procrastinating or they rehearse up to the point of conscious competence where they're just, they're hitting the marks, they're doing the thing, it becomes rote, it becomes sing song, but it never drops in. Mm-hmm. We want it to drop in and start to feel natural. You know, I, I think that's so helpful to hear because the best talks I've attended and the best talks I've given have been when there is that deep connection with the audience. Yeah. And that doesn't come when you're focusing on what you're going to say, like let alone how you sound when you're saying it, you just know the material so well that Mm -hmm. you can focus on the time on stage being connected to the people in the room. And that's really where the magic happens. But I, I've always thought that that comes from doing something enough that you just know it somewhere deep down inside you're in the recesses of your mind and you don't have to think. But I, I'm, I'm yeah. so curious about how you could prepare to be in that place. Like, I think for me, that's always been those, like, you can't force that. It just is, you know it well enough and then you focus on the connection or you just have to do it enough, you know, poorly enough times mm-hmm. to develop that kind of competence. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of ways to rehearse. I am not a big fan of the advice of like rehearse in a mirror because I think that does tend to put people in their heads. Yeah. The thing that particularly my partner, Julie has started saying all the time is it's not about you. It can't be about you and it can't be about how you're doing. If you're thinking about how you're doing, you're not present anymore. You're not with the audience. The thing that I always say is you can't be the director and the actor at the same time. Mm, And I spent a lot of time as an actor, learning the difference here, because like, again, being a perfectionist, being like a high achiever and, and self-critical, it was very easy for me to, when I'm singing a song to think about like, oh, how am I placing this note? Or like, when am I doing my straight tone into vibrato? Or when am I crescendoing? Or like, you know, this is where the big arms come in or whatever, you know what I mean? <laughs> and instead of, you know, what my acting coach has, has drilled into me repeatedly of the voice follows the story. And if you're truly in the story, the voice will follow, the hands mm-hmm. will follow, the technique will follow. So there's that. So in terms of rehearsal, first of all, most people in most circumstances do not need a word-for-word script. You just don't need it unless you're doing a TED Talk. If you're doing a TED Talk, you probably want a word-for-word script because you know it's going to be filmed for all eternity and it needs to be 17 minutes exactly, et cetera, et cetera. So we work with a lot of people doing TED Talks. And there are very specific techniques when you're working on a word-for-word script because you've got to figure out how to make it feel natural and not like you're reading a book report, which of course so many TED Talks feel a little bit like that. For most circumstances, what we're talking about is you need to know your outline. You need to know your map through the forest. How am I getting from point A to point Z? And there are 52 different ways that I could get from point A to point Z. I need to know my way from A to Z. And knowing the transitions is so important. Like if you memorize your transitions from point to point, then you can kind of 
have a little freedom within the point itself and you know how I'm getting from point A to point B and then from B to C. And the other thing that we, that we teach people is the actor tool of objective, which is what am I trying to do here? What am I trying to accomplish? It's not, you know, increase sales 25% next quarter. It's what do I want my audience to feel and what do I want them to do? So in an acting scene, you know, if it's like my objective is I want this person to fall in love with me, right? Well, first of all, it's not a great objective because it's hard to know if you've accomplished it. I want this person to kiss me is a good objective because it's a physical thing. I know if I've accomplished it. I know if I've won. And then I have all these different tactics that I use to try to accomplish that happening. Flirt, tease, you know, get really vulnerable, right? All these different ways, right? If anyone listening to this podcast is a parent, right? If you've ever tried to get your toddler to like get in the car to go somewhere, you know, that's a strong objective. Get the kid in the jacket, get out the door, right? And we have a million different ways that we accomplish that from bribery to threats. You know, (laughs) these are tactics. So this is where it gets fun. This is where you figure out what objectives feel good on you and what tactics feel good on you and what you can lean into as your strengths. We've had a lot of discussion lately and we just built a workbook around your communication core values and your strengths. And this is where I think you can start to connect those with your tactics and your objectives. My husband has the gift of logic. He is a brilliant, logical thinker, and he can lead people through complex arguments really beautifully. I have the gift of warmth. I'm really good at like making people feel excited and making people feel welcomed. Like knowing what you bring to the table and what you can really lean into is such a powerful way to gain a little confidence immediately. And again, taking the focus off yourself, put it on the audience. What do I want them to feel? What do I want them to do? Hmm. That is interesting as entrepreneurs who are doing, you know, podcasts and webinars and Facebook lives or whatever, like to know what your strength is that you just described. Like, I don't yeah. know what that is for me or Jenny. Like, that's so interesting. I'll send you the workbook. We need the workbook. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We need that no, workbook. It's good. I mean, it's, it's, this is the kind of deep work that, again, we put a lot of thought, I think, into, you know, if you're going in for an interview or whatever, and somebody asks you, like, what are your strengths, right? What are your strengths as a communicator? What are you good mm-hmm. at? And, and this is a great one to pull your friends. Like, what would your friends say about you? Because I think sometimes it's really hard to identify your own strengths, especially if you're self-critical. But I think, you know, a friend can say to you, you know, you're really funny, but like your humor is sort of dry and, and sarcastic, but I love it when you do that thing or whatever. And we also have this this very firm belief in the idea of, communication strengths and evil twins. So we don't believe in positive or negative core values, right? So our core values list has some words that some people might go, oh, like, I don't know, like that feels uncomfortable. Like one of them that, that is used in against women, I think so often is the idea of intimidating. Mm. Have either of you ever been called intimidating? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. My staff, my previous life, they said I was intimidating. I'm like, yeah. I'm the nicest person ever. Yeah. Why? Well, so this is a thing. And I think it's particularly a word that's like, oh man, it's, it's, a, it's a third rail for women. Like when you're called intimidating, what are... So the question that I always ask, like when I have a client who tells me that people tell them they're intimidating, I'm like, first of all, what is your relationship with that person? And what do they get out of calling you intimidating? Mm -hmm. What is their objective in calling you intimidating? Are they actually intimidated by you? Because it's not the same thing. Calling someone intimidated Mm -hmm. does not mean I am 
intimidated. Sometimes it means like you're a little much, or I find you too confident, or I find you, you know, too direct or whatever. And again, there is soul searching mm-hmm. that you can do. Certainly. I'm not saying that, you know, no woman who's ever been called intimidating doesn't need to like think about her presentation and how she's connecting with people. But it's it's just one of those easy tropes that you can just, you know, it's just a really easy way to shut somebody down. So I brought that up because the idea of superpowers and evil twins. So if one of your superpowers is intimidation, and I actually think it might be one of mine. So are you guys familiar with Designing Women and Julia Sugarbaker from Designing Women? Yes. No. Yeah, the barely, like, like a distant memory from okay, so childhood. Okay, yeah. so seriously, everyone should Google Julia Sugarbaker, the night <laughs> the lights went out in Georgia. It's this famous <laughs> monologue that Dixie Carter does on Designing Women, and she's, she's in this mode of defending her sister from this mean girl, basically. And it is like, oh my God, it's so much fun to watch because she is a killer, but she does it with this sort of like Southern belle, Mm. beautiful, like warm kind of voice. And she just gets right in her face, right? So intimidation is something like all communication core values that you can sort of use for good or for evil, depending on the circumstance. And it can be a really powerful thing to bring in just a little, just a sousson of intimidation sometimes is exactly what you need to communicate with that person with authority, with power, or you can take it too far, right? But the same thing with my warmth, right? Warmth sounds like a lovely, warm, fuzzy word. Kindness sounds like a lovely, warm, fuzzy word, right? But kindness taken too far can mean people step all over me. And I never actually express myself or I never say the hard thing that really needs to be said because my value is kindness and I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. For me, warmth can become hogging the spotlight. It can become almost like I'm shining out so brightly that I overwhelm and I need to like rein it in. So this is, again, this is where the nuance comes in and the messiness comes in, but also where the fun comes in. It's mm-hmm. like knowing yourself, knowing what happens to you when you get stressed, knowing what happens to you when you feel like you need to prove yourself or when you feel self-conscious or when you don't feel confident, what are your coping mechanisms so that then you can make a different choice if you want to make mm-hmm. a different choice? Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. Casey, I think we're going to switch gears into your business and then move into joy and hustle. I could seriously listen to you all day. So I must, I know you have a podcast, so I'm going to check that out. But tell us about, you have a business partner. I'd love to hear a little bit about that relationship. And then the second part is, we'd love to know what you guys envision for your business one year from now and 10 years from now. Ooh, such juicy questions. We've just, you know, of course with the, God, it's already March, which is just insane to me. It feels like we just did our like, you know, January thinking about the future thing. I think a lot of people are doing, especially with 2020, it just feels like a big big, switch, right? Big year. So my partner, Julie, and I, I mean, she's my second spouse, right? Like your business partner becomes your spouse. I'm married to two people. I'm married Mm -hmm. to my husband and I'm married Mm -hmm. to Julie. Julie is the introvert half of our duo. She's so creative. She has just this swirling brain full of ideas and concepts and the way that she sees concepts and and then takes them and like mulls over them and organizes them is something that's magic to me. She has an uncanny ability to read people. Like it's almost scary how well she reads people. And I think some of that is the introvert superpower. 
she and I have, you know, it's been a, a road. And anytime you have a partnership with somebody of any kind, whether it's romantic or business or whatever, things get complicated, things get tough. The thing that we are also bi-coastal now. So she lives in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I live in New York City. This was always the long-term plan, but it became a much nearer term plan because she, and she wouldn't mind me saying this, she like shook up the etch-a-sketch of her life and started over basically because like things went down and she needed a change. And so suddenly we were bi-coastal and it was like, okay, let's figure out what navigating a three-hour time difference and a whole new market looks like. And it's been really exciting. I mean, our business in Silicon Valley and San Francisco has been building steadily and is really exciting because like, let's be clear, they need a lot of help out there with this stuff. Like, let's just be clear about that. And it's it's a great market for us. And, and I'm going to go out there actually next week and we're going to work with a giant, let's not name it, tech company, hopefully if coronavirus doesn't cancel our, our gig. <laughs> but it's the thing that I appreciate about us the most, I think, is and maybe more than any other relationship in my life, our ability to be honest with each other and our ability to do what I think women are really, really good at, which is take care of each other's feelings when we need to say a hard thing or disagree on something, but also still have the bravery to say it. And we're continually, I think, checking in with each other about like the consent of, you know, is this the right time to address this? Great, let's address this. Like, and it's it's something that has served us really, really, really well over our years of partnership. And I it really just continues to grow and, and we make each other better. We just we share a brain at this point in time, but we we really do we're different enough that we make each other better. And certainly I think when we get to present together in front of companies, I think one of the strongest things about us presenting together is you do get to see two very different examples of confidence and the way people put together thoughts, the way people express themselves. Like she comes from a straight theater background, which is such a weird term. I'm musical theater. She's straight theater, which means plays, right? But we have very different energies on stage, but they complement each other. And we've learned to navigate that and stuff. And it's been stressful, but it's also been incredibly fun. And I've learned so much from her that I wouldn't have learned if I had a partner who was just like me, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That sounds like us. It's so, there's so many similarities there. It's so, it's so interesting. So tell us about the, the business. One in 10 year plan. What is it? So I think that the one year plan has already two months into the year shifted a little bit. And partially, honestly, because of coronavirus, because it's it's changing the event landscape really quickly. Mm-hmm. Our big goals at the beginning of the year were to shift our focus. We're not doing private coaching anymore. We very much still love our private coaching, but I think where we know that we can make both the biggest impact and frankly, also the most money, like let's just be clear, it's okay Mm -hmm. to make money, Mm -hmm. is corporate workshops and going into companies again. So we get to do a little bit more of the systemic approach, talk about this stuff, talk about team communication dynamics, talking about diversity and inclusion and how we hear diverse voices talking about, you know, we work with sales teams, like how can you be more confident in front of clients, all of those different things. And so really punching up how we market that, how we get in front of the decision makers for that, how we talk to, you know, everybody from, you know, talent people to HR people, how do we get access to the budgets, the development budgets of, you know, bring us into your company and we will make your people talk better. Like it's just, that's what we do. Mm -hmm. And, and not only talk better, but like 
interact better, communicate better, and that makes everything better. So that's so that's a big focus is the corporate workshops aspect. The other thing that we want to do is write a book. The book's been burning in us for like six years now. It's time for us to write a book. So we're working on a book proposal. We actually got a couple hours blocked out this afternoon to work on the book proposal. So that's the near-term goals are upping the corporate workshops you know, getting more. We launched our podcast in October. So I think just increasing brand recognition and getting just more people to hear what we think about stuff and the book are the three big goals. And so then the 10 year goals, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Like back in 2014, I think I had a much clearer vision of the future than I have in 2020. I think one of the things that has shifted for me in the political and cultural landscape is everything feels hazier. Everything feels, frankly, like it's kind of poised on the knife's edge of disaster so much of the time. Like one little thing could tip us in the right direction or one little thing could tip us in the wrong direction. And I think part of that is climate change. Part of that is sociopolitical upheaval. And I think that having that uncertainty has made us want to be extra prepared that business conference that we spoke at, which was the first business conference that we ever both pitched to and spoke at, BullishCon, the founder of the conference said something that day that I will never forget. She said, you don't know what your future self is going to want, but you know what your future self is going to need. And your future self needs options and resources. And I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. (laughs) So our 10-year plan, I mean, in a dream world where we're not where New York isn't like under five feet of water and San Francisco has not, you know, crashed into the bay and America still exists in our dream world in 10 years. I'd love to see a vital voice training Dallas and a vital voice training Chicago and a vital voice training LA and a vital voice training DC. I would love to, so many of my actor friends are like, are you hiring? I'm like, Mm. as soon as I am, I will let you know because we do believe in this work We do believe so deeply in our philosophy and we believe that how we teach what we teach is really unique and it's really empowering. And we do believe that within a short period of time, we're going to need to hire more coaches. But I do have visions of, you know, having 50 or 100 coaches around the country who all fall under our umbrella, who are teaching our method, who are empowering as many voices as we can get our grubby little fingers on Mm -hmm. and really continuing to broaden the definition of what does authority sound like? What does power sound like? What does leadership sound like? Because I think it's the only way the world's going to change. Well, I love your vision. I love it. And I also believe we're riding shotgun to the apocalypse. So we're on the same page there. And I actually think, you know, entrepreneurship is the response. I mean, in my, I was, I worked in climate change all the way until starting this company. And this to me is the antidote is changing the way we live and work. And I think we're, you know, in in different ways working on the same thing. So a hundred percent. Yeah. 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 And we need to work together. We need all the ideas. And when we can't listen to people because we can't hear them, we don't get the best ideas. We only get some people's ideas. And frankly, they're typically the same ideas we've already heard. Yeah. We need new ideas. Yeah. Well, I totally agree. And I think that what you've shared here today is going to help a lot of our listeners to understand how to inhabit their own authority and start to think about how they're using their voice. So thank you. 
Well, it's time, I believe, to move into the joy and hustle. So could you please share with our listener something that brings you joy? This can be anything and a tool to help them hustle in their businesses. Sure. So for me, using my voice as a singer is something that will never stop being joyful for me. So I, I sing with an incredible choir in New York City called the Broadway Inspirational Voices. It's led by a gentleman named Michael McElroy who started the choir 25 years ago during the peak of the AIDS crisis. And it was in response to the Broadway community being really, really grieving and racked with you know death and, and destruction and pain. And he believed in the power of diverse voices coming together to sing. At that point, it was mostly gospel music, which is what I grew up singing. I don't consider myself religious anymore, although I still consider myself a person of faith. But the choir now sings gospel music, you know, but it's it's like people of all different religions. We also sing like R&B arrangements of Broadway stuff. We, we did a cool arrangement of Room Where It Happens from Hamilton, the musical. And singing with these people brings me so much joy, but also singing with my family. So I'm visiting my family right now in Illinois, just outside of St. Louis. And last night, my daddy hosted a cabaret in our living room. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. You guys, you don't even understand. There was like... <laughs> So it was like <laughs> retired music teachers and retired music ministers and people, you know, his friends from all over and like a guy who plays guitar well enough that he could go to Nashville and be a studio musician right now. And, you know, it just was so joyous. And there were so many different styles of music. And he had this idea. I come by this stuff naturally. He had this idea. He calls me like a little bit before New Year's and he's like, I couldn't sleep last night. I had this idea and we're going to do a concert. It's going to be a secret cabaret. And I was like, okay, secret cabaret. Sounds great. So my husband and I flew to visit my family and I sang one of the gospel songs that I sang with my family when I was a kid. And I sang Don't Rain on My Parade and my husband and I sang together. And, and it was just... It was extremely joyous. So music and singing will always bring me joy. Oh, that's amazing. What a great story. Oh my God. So then, okay, so hustle. I mean, I have so many different like tool tools that I use. I love Canva. I love Acuity Scheduling. I love Zoom, which we're on right now. But the biggest tool I think that I have availed myself of is community and particularly a community of women entrepreneurs. Like I moving from the theater world where I would like to blow up the myth of all women are catty and hate each other and can't possibly collaborate. Like I think the burn it down, burn that myth <laughs> down. But in the world of musical theater, where I came from, we have a serious scarcity problem. We have a, like a real genuine factual scarcity of jobs huge oversupply of talent, huge undersupply of demand. And whenever that happens, the human fear response kicks in and it's very hard to create authentic, non-competitive relationships in that environment. It just is. It's something that we have to actively work to reject. And I, I do have wonderful female friends in theater, but there was always a sense, and frankly, there still is whenever I go back in the theater world sometimes of everybody side-eyeing each other and like, are you my competition? Are you going to steal a job from me? When I moved into the lady business community, I experienced something very different. And I know that my experience isn't universal, but what I experienced was women who were so willing to share knowledge and share resources and, and truly believed that like, there is enough business for all of us. Mm -hmm. What we do is unique. I mean, I know other voice coaches. I know other public speaking coaches and 
you know, a lot of us share similar philosophies. We share similar backgrounds, but like we do things differently. We bring different energy. I believe in coach client fit. I believe the right people find us when we put ourselves out there fearlessly. So there's enough to go around. In my dark times, I don't always believe that. But mm-hmm. in my in the center of what I believe is there is enough to go around. And the sharing of resources and the energetic sharing of resources and the vent sessions and the like, sometimes we just need to have a margarita and complain about the world sessions and you know, I, I've breakfast every Thursday morning with a girlfriend of mine who owns a theater company and who is an entrepreneur and has done entrepreneurial stuff her whole life. And, you know, we just, we share so much beyond just like, this is the best software for scheduling stuff. Like it's, that is invaluable to me. And that has made the often overscheduled, stressful, difficult life of an entrepreneur also joyous and fun and empowering. No better job. Yep. Yep. I totally agree. And I absolutely think community is essential. It is one of the essential elements that we've discovered and that we create as well. Totally. In our space. So I agree. And I'm so glad that you found your way to entrepreneurship you know, Me too. bringing this <laughs> set of skills that you have, because, you know, I don't, I only know my own little silos and I'm always so like intrigued when I meet someone that has such a different, radically different background. And so, yeah, it's great to share the space. Thank you. It's really, you know, the shift from the theater world where you spend so much of your time, A, getting rejected <laughs> and B, asking people for permission to do their thing. Yeah going into the room and auditioning and being like, please pick me, moving to building my own rooms and welcoming people into a shared space and making my own opportunities. Again, like 2020, like thinking back to 2010, which is when I booked the Les Mis tour and when I started rehearsing for the Les Mis tour, if I had like told my 2010 self what I was going to be doing in 2020, I think she might've freaked out. (laughs) I think she might've been like, oh my God, you gave up on your dreams of Broadway. (laughs) No, I just expanded my dreams. Like if Broadway wants to call me tomorrow, like, yeah, I'll do a Broadway show and I'll keep working on my thing because vital voice training is my baby. Like it's Mm -hmm. the work that I am meant to do on this planet in addition to singing and dancing and acting. So dreams don't have to be linear. They can be multi-world dreams. And that's how my dreams have shifted. So it's great. It feels very empowering. That is a perfect note to end on, a perfect message. So thank you, Casey. I have so enjoyed the conversation and we'll definitely be in touch and do some work together. Thank you. So excited to, to continue getting to know you guys. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Ready to go from, I really want to build an online business, but don't know where to start, to, wow, I've just sold my first digital product. That's exactly what we're going to help you do during our free Become an Online Teacher course. We've created a simple five-day email-based course to teach you everything you need to get started as an online teacher. By the end of the week, you'll have a digital product that's mapped out, priced, and ready to offer your community. Head over to soulful.mba slash teacher to sign up. It's totally free.